Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hash Talk, a podcast exploring the best of blockchain in Asia. I'm your host, Sankalp Shangari, and this is our open source attempt to bring you the latest news, narrative, and interviews with the best minds in blockchain and related technologies. So let's dive right in. Hey guys, uh, hello back and welcome to Hash Talk. Uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, very close friend, one of the very known personalities here in Singapore, uh, Nizam. Nizam is, is a great friend uh, who's a lawyer by training. He's an ex-regulator uh, with MAS and recently set up his own consulting uh, regulatory and compliance consulting company, Ethicom. Um, Nizam, uh, we've been looking forward to this conversation and we have a lot, lot, lot of questions for you. How are you today? <laughs> very good, Sanko. Thanks very much for the kind introduction uh, and thank you for having me on Hashtalk. Now, any, anytime. Uh, it's, uh, you know, there's, there's so many uh, diversified things that you worked on and, and so many questions for you. Uh, a lot of people have asked me to get you on this uh, talk, uh, not, not because you are one of the nicest people around, but also one of the most uh, knowledgeable. Uh, so good to have you. Thank you. Happy let's, to be here. Let, let, let's, let's just uh, dive right in. Who is Nizam? I think we want to know how did you end up with Ethicom? Where did you start? Why law and 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 I know you're not originally from Singapore. I am so actually. What, oh, you are. Yes. So what's what's the journey been like with with the lawyer and a law firm and a regulator? Okay. Um, yeah. So after law school, um, I, I was a government scholar. So I served my bond by uh, being a deputy public prosecutor in state council. Uh, dealing with corporate and securities fraud. So that's the part of me I don't like to talk about very much because it scares people more than excites them. Yeah. <laughs> so after um, eight years of sending people to jail and being desensitized as a human being, um, there came this opportunity to work with the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Um, then Singapore was revamping its capital markets. Um, so... I happened to be in this interagency working group and my uh, boss-to-be at MES was in that working group and she asked me to join the MES and um, so it was really, really good fun. Um, I worked on drafting the Securities and Futures Act and the Financial Advisors Act, the Business Trust Act, the Trust Companies Act and the first code on corporate governance in Singapore. Um, so I did that for six and a half years. Um, thereafter, um, I decided to join the private sector, so I joined banking. Uh, various international banks, either as senior legal counsel or head of compliance. Um, so after being in banking, um, I joined a law firm, um, um, and it, it was it was a time which was very exciting. Uh, it was a time when even the term fintech wasn't coined or wasn't very familiar. Um, but we we did a lot of work with fintech companies, and when the blockchain wave came, um, uh, we were in a position where because um, uh, my core DNA was uh, in regulatory compliance. Yeah. Um, it became helpful for a lot of um, the guys in the blockchain space because their first order question is always, do I need to be regulated? So one of the things that we enjoy doing is actually engaging uh, the regulators on what would be an appropriate regulatory treatment for an innovative product. So I remember that uh, one of the first things that we did was to actually engage the MES on their regulatory approach towards initial coin offerings or ICOs. Um, I remember calling a former colleague and the f- response from the MES then was, what's an ICO? <laughs> <laughs> Good old uh, yeah. and, uh, and then the question was, how will you regulate this? So we, we came up with some suggested approach. And I think it was very good that Singapore came up with clarity. Um, this was a couple of years back on how the MES would look at ICOs. And I think that clarity was important in also developing uh, the ICO market here. Um, I think along the way, the MES has been uh, very uh, clever in trying to encourage innovation without killing it and having a framework that um, encourages innovation to happen. Um, So we see that happening 
Um, for instance, uh, when the MES encourage, implicitly encourage uh, securities tokens by allowing uh, blockchain-based uh, securities marketplaces to get the RMO license, the recognized market operator license. That was a good start. Um, so we were happy working on some of those early projects. And along the way, the MES also announced that uh, they came up with the idea of a Sandbox Express. Now, the Sandbox is a tool where regulators encourage experimentation uh, within a very you know a confined environment. Uh, so if the explosion uh, blows up, it's a very confined explosion. Uh, but what was great is that uh, in the RMO Express, the promise by the MES is that they will process the application, sorry, the Sandbox Express for RMOs rather than RMO yeah. Express. So they will encourage experimentations for RMOs within 21 days. So if you apply to the Sandbox and you satisfy the innovative uh, requirements, you can get into the Sandbox within 21 days. So that, that's a great, great outcome. Uh, and of course, um, the Payment Services Act um, was also, uh, it's law now, it's, it's going to be implemented um, in early 2020. Um, it will regulate all cryptocurrency exchanges. Uh, they call it um, DPT, Digital Payment Token uh, Exchanges. Um, I think that the, the broader messaging, um, you know, whether RMOs, Securities Tokens or, or Payment Services Act is that the regulator is looking at these activities as mainstream financial services. Uh, because um, they will be regulated with the same uh, intensity uh, and scrutiny as other financial services offerings. So you need a license, you need to have your regulated uh, minimum regulated, uh, regulatory uh, paid-up capital, your KYC AML needs to be in tip-top condition, there are ongoing obligations, the MES will come down and inspect you. So this applies across the board. Um, and again, this is a very powerful argument for a crypto exchange to now tell a bank that look, uh, you can't continue to treat me with the same uh, overly cautious, de-risking eyes because the same regulator is regulating both of us yeah. equally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, plenty of activities within the regulatory space uh, in the last couple of years. I think um, it's still a work in progress. I anticipate um, there will still be lots of regulatory changes going forward. Um, interestingly, the MES just recently issued a consultation paper on crypto derivatives, uh, where the messaging was that they will be regulating this, but only for the systemically significant approved exchanges. However, for the other uh, um, players that are listing crypto derivatives, this will not be regulated. Um, will it be regulated in the future? I think there's a high chance it would be, but for now it's not. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting space to look at. Amazing, amazing. I I want to take a step back. Uh, uh, your early days, your early career, where uh, you worked very closely with MS. Uh, you rightly said, and most of the uh, guests who come on Hash Talk, uh, they they love Singapore as their favorite regulator, and and obviously the the, the reasons that you explained uh, why why they are such a favorite. What what shaped MS to be so open and forward looking like they are today, and and at the same time take steps very cautiously, uh, unlike most of the regulators in the region or even globally. Uh, how how was that early days? Was it some person who drove it? Was it a system they said? What what is the rationale and? thinking behind what MAS does? I think, um, I mean, it's, it's not by chance. I, I think it's a very carefully thought through, deliberate policy of encouraging innovation on the one hand, um, but being mindful that, you know, um, you have all these old, older regulations that are in, in, your, in, in your toolbox. Um, but you know that if you apply all these regulations in the way they are currently drafted, it will kill off innovation. So you need to find a balance on the one hand between facilitating innovation and properly regulating the markets. And there are good reasons for regulations uh, in most instances. Um, 
But we have seen the position of the MAS also changing over the years, right? Uh, let's let's take cloud cloud uh, computing for instance. I think when it was first rolled out, uh, people started talking about the cloud. Um, understandably, the MAS was quite cautious about it, and there was a reluctance uh, to embrace it. Um, but along the years, as the regulators understand uh, what exactly uh, cloud com you know, uh, the cloud service providers could provide and also the security that came along with it, um, they got more comfortable. So I think oftentimes it's a case where regulators in the industry should come together, sit down, know exactly where the pain points or the risk uh, points are and then decide on a suitable regulatory approach. Uh, because, um, you know, I, I think both sides need to understand each other. The regulators, by nature, are wired in a certain way to be overly cautious. The industry, of course, always wants to push the envelope and introduce something to the market as soon as possible. Um, but there will be blind spots on both sides. And I think the way to eliminate those two blind spots is for people to come together and have a very uh, constructive conversation. And I think that has happened in the past. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. So, so encouraging innovation uh, with an open mind and forward looking. Uh, obviously, MS is is famous for that. Uh, you have worked on a lot of acts and a lot of uh, 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 new regulations very closely uh, uh, during your uh, legal career as well as when you were the regulator. What was the brightest moment or what was your favorite uh, moment working with MAS? Working with MAS? Yeah. Um, I think it was very exciting times um, and I still love the work as a regulator because um, when you create a new policy, that has tremendous impact on the entire market. So um, sometimes it works, sometimes it might not work and you know, I think more fundamentally, um, I think that I think regulators haven't quite measured the impact of their policies, and there's always something that that I've I've always encouraged uh, regulators to think about. Um, it's about the the impact of an actual policy, um, whether it has worked or it hasn't worked, and I think uh, there can be more thought into thinking about how you measure that impact. Um, but I've always, always enjoyed uh, um, doing broad policy work because it's uh, intellectually very fulfilling and you know it's very satisfying to see your policies come to life um, but I, I also enjoy working with uh, within this innovative financial services space um, quite a lot um, so in within the fintech space for instance I've, I've worked with startups I've worked with unicorns um, but it's always exciting when you, you you meet a startup for the first time and you hear what they want to do um, the the real uh, innovation that, that they want to implement and, and I think there's nothing more fulfilling for me than looking at some of the startups that I've worked with um, and, and you know I've interested them like maybe five six years ago and they've grown to be very big and successful yeah. so it's it's um, a lot of uh, satisfaction I think uh, that you know you've contributed a little bit in helping them grow or to understand the regulatory uh, um, nuances and how you navigate them. Um, so that, that brings a lot of satisfaction. What is that common trait that you see among these successful founders? Or common traits? <laughs> Grit. 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 Um, yeah. Everybody has ideas, right? But mm. being able to execute it well um, and, you know, you, you get a sense of, um, as to how gritty <laughs> the, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of co-founders are when you start working with them. Yeah. Um, you, you could sort of sense, uh, for instance, when, let's say, um, they have to apply for a license and the MES comes back with a whole slew of questions, and that's quite typical. The more, I think there's a very co strong correlation, the, the co-founders who are very uh, strong-willed in turning around the responses very quickly and putting it a lot of priority on giving very solid responses are the ones who are more likely to be successful. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a correlation. Yeah. Whereas those that, uh, you know, 
find it a big bother and you know you might struggle to even get the responses for them um, um, I, I'm not I mean this is probably over generalizing mm-hmm. but there, there is a correlation as to you know whether they they show the same amount of grit in real life in running their businesses mm-hmm. yeah. amazing yes I, th- I think grit and uh, uh, discipline discipline uh, or call it uh, you know perspiring in every every field and like you said uh, being very responsive and focused uh, on the priorities uh, is is something definitely a successful entrepreneur has. Um, I I think I think our audience uh, uh, in their minds would be today uh, looking forward since Nizam is here. They they definitely want to know uh, what the landscape was uh, in terms of uh, fintech and blockchain regulations and and what that compliance is going to be going forward. So let's let's divide it into three different questions. Uh, the first is uh, pre-ICO era, uh, the fintech era, when, when the blockchain had just started. Uh, we, we had several regulations, be it on the remittance side, payment side, etc. Can you, can you give us an overview of what those uh, regulations were? Uh, just a quick overview and and where do those regulations stand today? The general fintech uh, scenario in Singapore. I think when, when the fintech, uh, when fintech became a buzzword, and then uh, the MES started having these fintech festivals, right? I think one of the first few changes in regulations came in um, in relation to equities, crowdfunding, uh, peer-to-peer lending, and yeah. then robo advisors, if you would recall them, because at that point in time it was unclear. Uh, how a crowdfunding platform would be regulated. Um, and I think, um, uh, yeah, the MES was fairly quick to come up with some guidance, and I think it helped the industry. We see then a proliferation of the ECF platforms, or the P2P platforms, yeah. and even the robo-advisor platforms. And the difficulty then, uh, and I think the MES was sensitive to this, the difficulty for a lot of startups is regulatory capital. Because if you benchmark it against the existing rules then, it meant, it meant that even for equities crowdfunding, your capital was 250000 Singapore dollars, but the MES reduced it to 50000 Singapore mm. dollars. So that, was, that helped. Um, and also it, that gave clarity on how the regulators looked at P2P lending, that it would be considered a debt instrument, uh, so therefore regulated under the SFE. Yeah. Um, and then you see the payments platforms coming through, the remittance platforms coming through. And again, that's very interesting because uh, we know that for the longest time, the MES wasn't keen to award new remittance license. Um, um, but along the way, that, that attitude changed. So I, I, I remember um, having brought uh, clients to see the MES. In the very early days, they wanted to do a remittance platform. And then uh, one key issue for the MES then was uh, face-to-face KYC. So they would never approve non-face-to-face KYC. Now you imagine that if that's a stance right now, it means that you know, 80% of all the fintech business is not going to succeed, right? Because yeah. people uh, would necessarily do a non-face-to-face KYC. But I remember at a meeting five, six years ago, <laughs> the MES officer told the, the client, and I felt very embarrassed uh, to be honest, that look, if you want to do non-face-to-face KYC, go to Hong Kong. So I was, I was uh, quite troubled by it, to be honest. Um, yeah. But that was the stance that the regulators took at that point in time. But having said that, um, that, that stance shifted. So along the way, the MES uh, would, would say, okay, we are okay for non-face-to-face KYC, but the standard is that we expect non-face-to-face KYC to be as good as face-to-face KYC. And guess what? We've never found one non-face-to-face KYC process to be as good as face-to-face KYC. And there was a strange chuckle at the end of the MESS officer's statement. Again, it was problematic, but there's some measure of progress. Mm. So we continued to push the envelope, and I think the MES was a lot more open for some of the more subsequent uh, clients. Uh, and uh, it took a bit of persuasion. Uh, so we had to even demonstrate how uh, facial recognition would work in one of the right tech providers. But I think there's a lot more comfort uh, um, you know, on the part of regulators. So I think it's a lot of uh, 
you know, regulators are human beings. Uh, people forget that. They, yeah. they, they need to be, to have a level of comfort. So if you can understand where their pain points are, but assure them that uh, even though something is new, you know, you could still mitigate uh, uh, against some of those pain points, then you, you, you have a good chance of persuading them. But, uh, but that makes, uh, you know, my job as an advisor or consultant more interesting because um, that engagement with the regulators uh, helps. Uh, I think um, um, Robbie Menon, the MD of MES, makes fantastic speeches. Yeah. And I think uh, some of them stick in my mind. Like uh, He made this very important statement that um, regulators must run alongside innovation. That's a very powerful statement. Uh, it means that you know, in the past, you used to you used to think that regulators lag behind innovation because you you want to make, see how things uh, pan out. But running alongside implies that you must be proactive. That at any point in time, you must be willing to take regulatory risks in order to facilitate innovation. And I think we want to see more of that. Um, the other broader development um, that I think needs to happen is international standards. Um, let's take crypto for example. I think most regulators uh, will look at BTC or ATH and say they are not securities. But you know, one of our neighbours up north um, takes the view um, that uh, if you're going to run a crypto exchange, you have to be regulated as a securities exchange. And that's quite problematic because it actually has got a lot of knock-on effects. Um, and I think part of the reason for this very uh, diverse uh, approach is the lack of international standards. Um, in conventional uh, financial services, as you know, we have got securities, a regulatory body called IUSCO, we've got the International Association of Insurance Supervisors, IAIS, and then the Basel Committee, um, things like that, to look at setting international standards. But we don't see very much for the blockchain space. And I think it's about time, in fact, it's probably a little late in the game, but not too late for regulators to come together and devise good international standards to regulate uh, some of these broader issues. Yeah, yeah. No, um, absolutely. You, you mentioned uh, Ravi Menon. A couple of other, a couple of days ago, I was listening to him on Bloomberg and, and uh, as usual, you know, he's, he's a great speaker, but the thoughts that he presents and the clarity of thoughts in a, in a very forward-looking way is, is amazing. He was talking about the US dollar, how it exists, but now it's, you know, time to to, to start looking at a broader digital asset. And he was very well aware and very open about the crypto and digital assets and Libra and what they're doing. So, so def definitely there. Uh, moving on to the ICO phase of things. Uh, we, we had uh, uh, a year, year and a half of a lot of ICOs from Singapore. Uh, and, and MAS was quite uh, uh, knowledgeable about it. They did not stop it, they did not promote it, but they were quite uh, 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 you know, they, they had set some, some ground rules. Tell us about that and, and how, how did you uh, and, and your firm, how did you uh, educate MAS on, on the entire regime? It was, it was an interesting discussion, to be honest. So, um, uh, you know, as I mentioned that, uh, you know, the MAS in first response was an ICO. Um, and then we got into an interesting discussion of what the treatment should be because there were no there was no guidance anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, along the way, I think the US SEC came and uh, gave, or it wasn't official. One of the SEC uh, senior uh, persons gave the view that uh, so long as it's not a securities, it is not regulated. So that was a good starting point. Um, so you will notice that um, the initial guidance from the MES was to for ICO issuers to ascertain uh, whether or not their tokens were securities. Um, and that is benchmark against what's written in the Securities and Futures Act. Um, again, it's a case where, you know, um, there wasn't any international benchmark on, on ICO tokens. And, uh, you know, you've, you've got clients uh, coming t um, uh, to ask, you know, whether um, these tokens would pass the Howey test. Yeah. And then my response to them was, look, the, the Howey test applies if you're in the US and, and you know you, you, you are ascertaining whether your tokens are securities and, and, uh, and Howey was an important landmark case that uh, gave some guidance. But that's relevant for the US. 
it might not necessarily all be relevant for a Singapore issuance because you need to look at what the Singapore law states. So there's lots of confusion in the industry around that as well. And then there was some confusion also that, you know, okay, if I get fiat in exchange for my tokens, that, that is problematic. But, you know, there's a lot of fears was generated internally yeah. and not because of some regulatory or legal basis. Um, yeah, I think the, the problem with the ICO space was that uh, because it was largely unregulated, if it wasn't securities, there were people who abused it. And um, there's, you know, talk about scams, uh, you know, a, a case where, you know, a few bad apples were... were causing problems because yeah. fundamentally it was it was actually a good thing for fund it was a fundraising option if you're an enterprise seeking to raise funds and you want to pre-sell your goods and services in the form of tokens and that was essentially it but and 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 why not because if you have a good idea and you if you believe in the power of the community let the community decide whether or not your proposition is a good one and if it's a good one people will come and contribute to your cause so it wasn't, you know, it's from, from that angle, it was actually something very good as an alternative form of fundraising for enterprises. Um, yeah, but uh, unfortunately, there were people abusing it. Um, there were some initiatives um, within the industry to try and raise the bar for ICO issuances. So I was involved in uh, um, the Global ICO Transparency Alliance, or uh, GITA for short. Yeah. that sought to put in place uh, best practices for ICOs. But unfortunately, uh, you know, the, the market uh, tanked. Uh, yeah. it, it's not completely dead yet. I, I think, and I like to believe that uh, there's still a space um, for good ICO projects going forward. And why not? Because, you know, if you have a good idea and you can show that you have, you can implement a good idea, then the, the community should have the right to evaluate it. Yeah. Yep, yep. So, uh, you know, uh, like you said, the market tanked and uh, the security side of things pick, started to pick up, especially a uh, lot of uh, STOs, uh, security token offerings started to happen in the US. And, and now we know that uh, there, is, there is a payment act coming in Singapore. There is a RMO uh, uh, registered market operator regime uh, both for the sandbox as well as as a proper license if you want it in Singapore uh, there, there are various crypto regulations as well as new consultation papers coming like the crypto derivatives one that's come out uh, we would we would like to know a bit about each uh, starting with the payments act what is it who does it affect and what do we have to do to prepare for that? Okay. Um, well, the Payment Services Act is interesting because, you know, for the first time, um, the Monetary Authority of Singapore is going to regulate crypto exchanges. So who does it impact? I think it will impact uh, crypto exchanges. It will impact uh, the trading desk, the crypto trading desk, OTC desk. Um, and then there are other activities um, like merchant acquisition, which will now be regulated, um, or account issuances, where if you want to say uh, issue a debit card, there will not be a formally regulated activity. Uh, whereas in the past, uh, they were not really regulated unless you know it, it involves an e-wallet. Um, so all forms of payment services will be regulated in effect. Um, um, and the MES has... Um, adopted a risk-focused approach, meaning that it divides the approach between standard payment institutions, those are for lower volume, uh, generally uh, businesses, um, compared to major payments uh, services uh, providers, which, which uh, you know, beyond a certain threshold, which is uh, $3 million uh, worth of transaction a month. Um, now, of course, the, the Act is going to happen, uh, I mean, this law has been passed by Parliament, uh, but it's yet to be implemented. It will be implemented in January. Uh, that's what we've been told. Um, so I think for a lot of players who were not regulated before, like the exchanges, the crypto exchanges, for instance, you need to start looking at your house and make sure, making sure that your house is in order. Um, there is a lot of emphasis on AML and CFT. Um, so if you haven't gotten your AML or CFT uh, sorted out, now is the time to get it done. 
make sure your compliance processes are documented properly, your processes are thought through, um, your KYC screenings is being done, your record keeping is being done properly, um, and don't forget transaction monitoring. I think uh, you need to be able to demonstrate that you have a process where you look at um, unusual patterns of transactions amongst the consumers that could flag uh, other money laundering or terrorist financing risks. Um, so get that in order. Um, people also forget that there are transitional arrangements in place if you are an existing player. So if you are an existing player, let's say you are live or you, you are an ongoing uh, entity, uh, let's say by December, there are actual transitional benefits for you. Um, meaning that, um, let's say if you're a crypto exchange that are that is operational um, by December, uh, you will have six months uh, where you can continue your business uninterrupted um, and then apply for a license at the end of six months. For other payment services uh, like merchant acquisitions or account issuance, you have 12 months. Um, so if you are thinking of getting license, um, you know, you should think about, you know, being in existence before the commencement of the act because that helps you in transitional arrangements. Yeah. 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 What is what is the sandbox and sandbox express? Okay. Um, the sandbox is a tool that the regulators use to facilitate innovation where they will allow you to conduct some form of uh, regulated activities within a controlled environment. So, for instance, if but the, the precondition that you must be innovative. So, the for instance, um, you know, if you have an innovative proposition on a securities token exchange, um, you can apply to be in the sandbox. And if you show innovation, whether in terms of your actual business model or from a technology point of view, um, you can, you know, get to the sandbox. The idea is that you go to market quicker. But within the sandbox, you might be impose certain limitations on volumes or number of customers um, but then um, you, you that's not, not a bad thing for a startup right so you, you, you carry on in the sandbox for say six months thereafter you graduate and then uh, you get your full license now the critique of the sandbox is this it's uh, and I used to tell the MES this that um, the time to be approved is far too long so the first couple of sandbox that we worked on to you know, eight months, nine months oh. to be approved. And to me, that's far too long. I think the MES knows about this. So they then decided to roll up the Sandbox Express. Um, um, and what this means is that for certain types of activities, they promise that they will turn around the application within 21 days. So that's a great thing. Um, unfortunately, it's not across the board. So it only applies for certain activities and it's been predefined. Uh, like RMOs, recognized market operators, or securities token exchanges is one of them. Uh, remittance is also one of them. Um, and the other activity, I think, is uh, general insurance platforms. Um, so if what this means is that if I'm running a remittance platform that is really innovative, I could apply to go into the sandbox and I could get approved within 21 days, and that's 21 days for me to go to market, and that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but don't forget, um, you need to demonstrate innovation and to be honest, it's quite a high bar um, and inherently, if you're a subsequent applicant, it gets harder and harder for you to differentiate yourself from the, from, from the you know, incumbents, um, but conceptually, it's not a bad thing, yeah. No, this is, this, is, this is good. Imagine a regulator who can give you a license within 21 days such a major license like a, like a trading uh, securities or yeah, but it's not a full license so yeah, yeah 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 absolutely it's just, uh, it's restricted but anyways as a startup you know uh, i don't have too much traction in the beginning anyways so so 6 months is a good time for me to test as well for me to abide by the regulations and me to build my systems around it yes. and and at the same time get more traction and if the regulator is giving you that permission then within 6 months they would allow you more and more leverage as as you grow if you are doing good so so i think yeah. it's a it's a, it's a great uh, uh, initiative uh, by 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 ms um, and it helps with your fundraising as well. Yes, because, you know, of course. From the investor point of view, that you're in the sandbox, you've got a foot in the door, 
unless you majorly screw up during the sandbox process, you're yeah. more likely than not to get a license. And I, and I tell you what, you know, I, I look at a lot of investments and a lot of uh, startups or a lot of funds as well these days. Um, the funds are, are, are the companies that are regulated with, with uh, a good regulator, with a good fund administrator, with a good, uh, uh, you know, auditor, PwC, NY, etc. They always catch your eye. You always give preference to them. So we are, in spite of all the hype, you know, we, we, we have to abide by the regulations. And, and I, think, I think it is a good thing uh, 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 in, in, in such a situation where you can get easy permissions and, and some transparency. Um, moving on, Nizam, I, I think uh, uh, the audience uh, would, would also want to know uh, uh, the current state of crypto regulations in Singapore. Uh, we've spoken about securities exchanges, we've spoken about Payment Services Act for the existing exchanges. Uh, what about uh, crypto derivatives or uh, crypto trading? Uh, in, in, I think that's under the Payment Services Act. But, but uh, other crypto activities, be it you know, consulting, for example, or advisory uh, for ICOs or STOs, uh, what, what are the compliance and regulations around them? Sure. Um, let's take, uh, let's take um, advisory for a start. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. I think the, the view is that um, currently if you advise on ICOs, that's largely unregulated unless it involves securities. If it involves securities and you advise the issuer, um, that is likely to attract uh, licensing. As uh, there is this um, licensing uh, box called a Corporate Finance Advisory uh, License, uh, which is a CMS license, one of the CMS license box, Capital Market Services license box, uh, under the Securities and Futures Act. And that's subject to the usual fit and proper track record and capital requirements. So that's going to be regulated. Um, crypto exchanges, as, as, as we, we discussed before, is going to be uh, you know, regulated under the Payment Services Act, as well as uh, trading platforms. Now, crypto derivatives is interesting. Um, the MESS consultation paper uh, proposes to regulate crypto derivatives for approved exchanges. And in Singapore, there are only four approved exchanges right now, which are systemically significant. Uh, namely the SGX Securities Trading, the SGX Derivatives Trading, uh, the Asia-Pacific Exchange and ICE, the Intercontinental Exchange, which brought over the former Singapore Mercantile Exchange. But apart from that, they are largely unregulated, for now. Um, the MES was quick to point out or to caution that crypto derivatives uh, should not be sold to retail, but theoretically um, it's not regulated, so they can be sold to retail in theory. Um, but going forward, will there be more regulations? Um, I suspect there will be. So let's take even uh, crypto exchanges for a start, right? The approach under the Payment Services Act is to regulate primarily for issues of uh, AML, KYC, and also technology risk management. I'm, I'm simplifying things. But if you look at the broader risks of a crypto exchange, there are many other risks as well. You know, yeah. For instance, uh, Manipulation is one risk that exchanges face. Uh, security of wallets is also another key risk, although that's folded under technology risk management, but there could be more prescriptions. You know, whether exchanges need to have an independent uh, custodian, for instance. So that, that's, that's something that regulators will need to think about. Um, and even a crypto custodian as a service itself is uh, you know, arguably not regulated, um, even under the Payment Services Act. So if I provide custody services for BTC or ATH, that's not, strictly speaking, regulated. Um, but that could change in future, because you know, um, as you think about the importance of uh, you know, custodizing these high-value assets, because e even in the conventional world, I mean, other forms of assets, where you provide custody for say, securities uh, is, is highly regulated. So, you know, fundamentally, I don't see why that should not be the case for crypto custodians. Um, so things are shifting and things are changing. Uh, the AML requirements uh, for 
crypto exchanges um, have been formulated already. It is in uh, there is a proposal in place uh, where some of the requirements um, that are unique to the crypto space um, have already been uh, proposed by the MES. But uh, I think uh, there will be more developments going forward. Amazing. Uh, your your knowledge and your your experience. Uh Obviously, on, on everything speaks for itself. Uh, it, it comes in a flow to you. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm assuming that is what Ethicom is all about, your experience and leveraging on that. So tell us about Ethicom and what is that going to be doing? Oh, well, we're, stru we're structured as a uh, compliance-focused consultancy, um, um, really leveraging on, on uh, what we're good at, and that's uh, regulatory and compliance matters. Um, I think we want to work, continue to work with financial services firms and fintech firms uh, to get them to do the right thing because I think in the world that we live in um, some things might be legal but it doesn't mean that they are the right thing to do um, and I think the more that the industry can demonstrate that it, it does the right thing the, the better the outcome will be in terms of good regulations rather than overly stifling regulations coming our way um, so we, we structure as a compliance consultancy, um, we, we want to help financial services firms, fintech firms, uh, blockchain focused businesses or even just companies generally um, to handle regulatory compliance issues. Uh, within financial services, um, you know, most people forget, the most fintech firms tend to ignore the fin in fintech, which yeah. is financial services, yeah. which is the most heavily regulated industry in the world. And uh, sometimes things just get very complex. The laws and regulations keep on changing, so you need to keep in touch with what's the latest piece of regulation. Um, and I think sometimes getting good advice is critical because it, you know, sort of guides you as to whether you want to, <laughs> you know, navigate the ocean of regulation successfully or you know be caught in a, in a big uh, tsunami um, and not knowing how to deal with it. Um, so we do lots of work in that um, regulatory advisory space, uh, helping uh, firms apply for sandbox or licenses, um, and then developing a compliance framework. That is robust, it, it gets regulators comfortable, but at the same time, sensitive to the needs of, uh, let's say a startup, where you know, you've you got uh, finite resources. So it's being clever and focusing on the key risks of, uh, of uh, fintech startups. Um, and then, to be honest, we also do work with regulators. Um, we've done capacity building programs for regulators in the region, um, um, guiding them on um, you know innovative uh, trends and you know where they can position their regulatory uh, approach towards uh, innovation. So um, we're very excited. Um, you know, it's been a couple of months, but we've been very excited. Uh, you know, encouraged uh, by the reception, and uh, yeah, I think uh, we we're hoping for good things ahead. Absolutely, you know, best of luck uh, because I know you have that experience. I know you have that network, and in fact, this is this is one field where there is a gap. You know, you, we have lawyers and we have uh, you know financial regulators, but but there is nobody to consult you to bridge that gap between the both, um, and and as more and more regulations are coming, it's becoming a uh, vast complex field which which is not easy to navigate it takes years and years sometimes and especially all these new companies coming into Singapore have no idea even how to register a company uh, where to go what to do and what regulations to follow not to follow so, and Singapore government is very helpful in terms of grants in terms of the sandbox experiments um, which which again these these uh, so I would I would recommend uh, each and every of my listener to to please consult Nizam and Ethicom in case of uh, you are you are building something new you are expanding you are uh, thinking of a, a, a regulated activity uh, or, or just in doubt Nizam is very helpful and and he would he would always guide you properly and and rightly very kind thank you sir you, you, you're welcome, Nizam. Uh, moving on to our last round, which is my favorite round. We call it rapid fire. Uh, I'm going to ask you 10 questions and, and whatever comes to your mind first, whatever 
uh, you think uh, is is uh, is right uh, and and witty and quick uh, is is your answer? Okay, you know uh, you don't prepare me for this. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's, it's 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 the easiest part, but it's the most okay. fun part. Uh, right. So so let's let's dive in. Uh, one, what's your favorite book and why? Oh God, that's a tough one. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm very bad at this. I've got a very short attention span. So sure. I flip through a lot of books. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I honestly can't remember some of the titles of the books. Maybe, maybe any article you would have read or any... Uh, you know, long essay uh, or, or, or some quotes that, that you think uh, always resonate with you or keep on reminding you of how uh, uh, life should be? Um, oh gosh, you, you, you got me here, Sankar. I, I was reading some of the um, yeah, uh, uh, deep management books um, and um, I think we, we, we I mean, I think it was a couple of religious books uh, <laughs> yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, I think rather than discuss the content, I think um, you know to discuss the approach. Uh, yes. So I, I like books which are snappy to the point, um, and you sort of synthesize a lot of these ideas into very simple, actionable uh, reminders, and and that those those are the books that uh, sit well with me. Yeah. No, I I I, I would uh, recommend a very good book on on that. A very snappy, quick, small book uh, called The Richest Man in Babylon. Okay. It's okay. about how to manage money and how the the Babylonians who were so rich used to do. Okay. So it's like it's very small. I think a few lessons in the book, but but it's a, it's a great book. If if you could have uh, dinner or you could spend time with three personalities, dead or alive, who would that oh, be? Oh man. <laughs> See, compliance and regulatory questions were so easy for you. Yeah, these are real tough ones. <laughs> Dead or alive? Any, any three people? Um, okay. Um, one of them would be a jazz musician. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, Miles Davis, yeah, because he's nice. such, yeah. such a genius and I wonder how he gets inspired sometimes. Um, for a date person, I'll probably have a meal with Lee Kuan Yew. Yeah. And uh, just to get a better insight as to why he did certain things and why he didn't do certain things, uh, both good and bad. <laughs> okay, I'll just leave it there. Um, Who's the last person I have dinner with? My wife. Nice, amazing, very good. That's a that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, who's your favorite blockchain or fintech company or or person? No, I, I risk offending a lot of people if I mention one favorite. So I'm gonna skip that one. That, uh, you can name a few. You can name three. <laughs> um. Name three. Okay, I, I like Funnel. Um, I mean, I've done some work for them. I'm an advisor to Funnel. Uh, they're one of the earlier uh, crowdfunding platforms. I think they've grown very, very quickly yeah. uh, into this region. Um, with now presence in Malaysia and Indonesia as well. So it's, it's very, very fulfilling to see them grow. Um, You're one of my favorite personalities. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I think uh, each time we have a conversation, I think I, uh, I like the energies that you have and you're always thinking of something new to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sankar always comes up with all kinds of uh, ideas. Um, yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll probably stop there. Great, yeah. great. Thank you, Nizam. Uh, one thing that you could do more of? Play my piano. Yeah. Oh, um, you play piano. I do play the piano. Um, I like jazz. Um, yeah. Um, so my wife and I perform. Um, I think we don't do enough of it. Yeah. So yeah, I should play the piano more often. <laughs> right. Right. Um, who's your favorite regulator besides uh, 
Singapore besides MS? Oh, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a tough one because each each regulator has got its own quirks. Um, I mean, to be honest, the MES too. Um, I think in terms of uh, trailblazing and being able to take risks. Uh, well, the UK has always been one of the stronger regulators um, in trying to come up with a very coherent uh, approach towards regulation. Um, and they tend to be the benchmark uh, against which other regulators uh, are being uh, benchmarked against. Um, but I, I think also if you see at some of the growing um, um, or emerging um, regions, um, I think the the Abu Dhabi guys are, are doing a yeah. lot of good things. Yeah. Uh, it's run by my good friend Richard Tang. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they've been winning quite a few awards. And I've met another, at the FinTech Festival, I, I met uh, a startup who was with another competitor region. And he said, oh, no, we've moved from that region to Abu Dhabi and there's no, no contest. So yeah. they do quite a lot of good things. Yeah. So I think they're they're quite exciting regulators to watch. Yeah. Yes, I, I caught up with them uh, last last week in the FinTech Festival with Sam, who heads up the, the crypto side of things, the blockchain side of it. So uh, it was it was an eye-opener to, to understand how, how they're thinking and, and how they're open to bringing in more uh, talent to, to the region. Um, what is your prediction for Bitcoin price June to 2020? <laughs> we, 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 this is not an investment advice. June 2020, 15,000. Okay, okay, 15,000, great. What's the most important thing that you have learned in your life? What was your life before learning that? And what is your life after learning that? I think living the moment is, is important. I mean, as, as you grow older, there's a lot more baggage that you carry along with you, right? There are a lot more experiences and uh, worries. Um, and I think, and also, you know, sometimes you get too caught up in trying to predict what's going to happen next. So I think it's more and more important to just live the moment. It's, yeah. It makes you a lot more happy um, not to worry too much about yesterday or tomorrow. Yeah. 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 So that, yeah. that has impacted me quite a bit, yeah. Very good, very good. It's it's uh, it's been one of my favorite as well. I think uh, um, uh, as as human beings, we are always uh, either entangled in our past or worried about the future. Both of which is beyond our control. As we we all know that it's so easy to say, but practicing that moment, living in that moment, is is very difficult. Yes. But but that is the uh, ultimate goal of uh, happiness, uh, if if we can say that. Uh, amazing, Nizam. I'm not going to uh, torture you more with these uh, rapid fires. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And, and uh, we definitely learned a lot. This was, this was probably one of the most knowledgeable uh, sessions we, we have done so far. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank, thanks for having me on board. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Hold up.